Scholastic Audio presents Mortal Engines, Book One, by Philip Reeve, read by Barnaby Edwards. Part One, Chapter One, The Hunting Ground. It was a dark, blustery afternoon in spring. And the city of London was chasing a small mining town across the dried-out bed of the old North Sea. In happier times, London would never have bothered with such feeble prey. The great traction city had once spent its days hunting far bigger towns than this, ranging north as far as the edges of the ice waste and south to the shores of the Mediterranean. But lately, prey of any kind had started to grow scarce, and some of the larger cities had begun to look hungrily at London. For ten years now, it had been hiding from them, skulking in a damp, mountainous western district that the Guild of Historians said had once been the island of Britain. For ten years, it had eaten nothing but tiny farming towns and static settlements in those wet hills. Now, at last, the Lord Mayor had decided that the time was right to take his city back over the land bridge into the great hunting ground. It was barely halfway across when the lookouts on the high watchtowers spied the mining town, gnawing at the salt flats twenty miles ahead. To the people of London, it seemed like a sign from the gods, and even the Lord Mayor, who didn't believe in gods or signs, thought it was a good beginning to the journey east and issued the order to give chase. The mining town saw the danger and turned tail, but already the huge caterpillar tracks under London were starting to roll faster and faster. Soon the city was lumbering in pursuit, a moving mountain of metal that rose in seven tiers like the layers of a wedding cake, the lower levels wreathed in engine smoke, the villas of the rich gleaming white on the higher decks, and above it all the cross on top of St. Paul's Cathedral glinting gold. Two thousand feet above the ruined earth. Tom was cleaning the exhibits in the London Museum's natural history section when it started. He felt the telltale tremor in the metal floor and looked up to find the model whales and dolphins that hung from the gallery roof swinging on their cables with soft creaking sounds. He wasn't alarmed. He had lived in London for all of his fifteen years, and he was used to its movements. He knew that the city was changing course and putting on speed. A prickle of excitement ran through him, the ancient thrill of the hunt that all Londoners shared. There must be prey in sight. Dropping his brushes and dusters, he pressed his hand to the wall, sensing the vibrations that came rippling up from the huge engine rooms down in the gut. Yes, there it was, the deep throb of the auxiliary motors cutting in. Boom, boom. Boom! Like a big drum beating inside his bones. The door at the far end of the gallery slammed open, and Chudley Pomeroy came storming in, his toupee askew and his round face red with indignation. What in the name of quirk? He blustered, gawping at the gyrating whales and the stuffed birds jigging and twitching in their cases, as if they were shaking off their long captivity and getting ready to take wing again. Apprentice Natsworthy, what's going on here? It's a chase, sir, said Tom, wondering how the deputy head of the Guild of Historians had managed to live aboard London for so long and still not recognize its heartbeat. It must be something good, he explained. They've brought all the auxiliaries online. 
That hasn't happened for ages. Maybe London's luck has turned. Ha! snorted Pomeroy, wincing as the glass in the display cases started to whine and shiver in sympathy with the beat of the engines. Above his head, the biggest of the models, a thing called a blue whale that had become extinct thousands of years ago, was jerking back and forth on its horses like a plank swing. That's as may be, Natsworthy, he said. I just wish the Guild of Engineers would fit some decent shock absorbers in this building. Some of these specimens are very delicate. It won't do. It won't do at all. He tugged a spotted handkerchief out of the folds of his long black robes and dabbed his face with it. Uh, please, sir, asked Tom, could I run down to the observation platforms and watch the chase just for half an hour? It's been years since there was a really good one. Pomeroy looked shocked. Certainly not, apprentice. Look at all the dust that this wretched chase is shaking down. All the exhibits will have to be cleaned again and checked for damage. Oh, but that's not fair, cried Tom. I've just dusted this whole gallery. He knew at once that he had made a mistake. Old Chudley Pomeroy wasn't bad, as Gillsman went, but he didn't like being answered back by a mere third-class apprentice. He drew himself up to his full height, which was only slightly more than his full width, and frowned so sternly that his guildmark almost vanished between his bushy eyebrows. Life isn't fair, Natsworthy, he boomed. Any more cheek from you, and you'll be on gut duty as soon as this chase is over. Of all the horrible chores a third-class apprentice had to perform, gut duty was the one Tom hated most. He quickly shut up, staring meekly down at the beautifully buffed toes of the chief curator's boots. You were told to work in this department until seven o'clock, and you will work until seven o'clock, Pomeroy went on. Meanwhile, I shall consult the other curators about this dreadful, dreadful shaking. He hurried off, still muttering. Tom watched him go, then picked up his gear and went miserably back to work. Usually he didn't mind cleaning, especially not in this gallery, with its amiable moth-eaten animals and the blue whale smiling its big blue smile. If he grew bored, he simply took refuge in a daydream, in which he was a hero who rescued beautiful girls from air pirates, saved London from the Anti-Traction League, and lived happily ever after. But how could he daydream with the rest of the city enjoying the first proper chase for ages? He waited for twenty minutes, but Chudley Pomeroy did not return. There was nobody else about. It was a Wednesday, which meant the museum was closed to the public, and most of the senior guildsmen and first- and second-class apprentices would be having the day off. What harm could it do if he slipped outside for ten minutes, just to see what was happening? He hid his bag of cleaning stuff behind a handy yak and hurried through the shadows of dancing dolphins to the door. Out in the corridor, all the argon lamps were dancing too, spilling their light up the metal walls. Two black-robed guildsmen hurried past, and Tom heard the reedy voice of old Dr. Arkengarth whine, Vibrations! Vibrations! It's playing merry hell with my twenty-fifth-century ceramics! He waited until they had vanished around a bend in the corridor. 
then slipped quickly out and down the nearest stairway. He cut through the 21st century gallery, past the big plastic statues of Pluto and Mickey, animal-headed gods of lost America. He ran across the main hall and down galleries full of things that had somehow survived through all the millennia since the ancients destroyed themselves in that terrible flurry of orbit-to-earth atomics and tailored virus bombs called the Sixty-Minute War. Two minutes later, he slipped out through a side entrance into the noise and bustle of Tottenham Court Road. The London Museum stood at the very hub of Tier 2, in a busy district called Bloomsbury, and the underbelly of Tier 1 hung like a rusty sky a few feet above the rooftops. Tom didn't worry about being spotted, as he pushed his way along the dark, crowded street toward the public goggle screen outside the Tottenham Court Road elevator station. Joining the crowd in front of it, he had his first glimpse of the distant prey, a watery blue-gray blur captured by cameras down on Tier 6. The town is called Salthook, boomed the voice of the announcer, a mining platform of 900 inhabitants. She is currently moving at 80 miles per hour, heading due east, but the Guild of Navigators predicts London will catch her before sundown. There are sure to be many more towns awaiting us beyond the land bridge, clear proof of just how wise our beloved Lord Mayor was when he decided to bring London east again. Tom had never felt his city move at such an astonishing speed, and he longed to be down at the observation deck, feeling the wind on his face. He was probably already in trouble with Mr. Pomeroy. What difference could it make if he stole a few more minutes? He set off at a run, and soon reached Bloomsbury Park, out in the open air on the tier's brim. It had been a proper park once, with trees and duck ponds, but because of the recent shortage of prey, it had been given over to food production, and its lawns grubbed up to make way for cabbage plots and algae pans. The observation platforms were still there, though, raised balconies jutting out from the edge of the tier, where Londoners could go to watch the passing view. Tom hurried toward the nearest. An even bigger crowd had gathered there, including quite a few people in the black of the Historians' Guild, and Tom tried to look inconspicuous as he pushed his way through to the front and peered over the railings. Salt Hook was only five miles ahead, travelling flat out with black smoke spewing from its exhaust stacks. "'Nabsworthy!' called a braying voice, and his heart sank. He looked around and found that he was standing next to Melifant, a burly first-class apprentice who grinned at him and said, "'Isn't it wonderful?' A fat little salt-mining platform with C-20 land engines. <laughs> Just what London needs. Herbert Melifant was the worst sort of bully, the sort who didn't just hit you and stick your head down the lavatory, but made it his business to find out all your secrets and the things that upset you most and taunt you with them. He enjoyed picking on Tom, who was small and shy and had no friends to stick up for him and Tom could not get back at him because Melifant's family had paid to make him a first-class apprentice, while Tom, who had no family, was a mere third. He knew Melifant was only bothering to talk to him because he was hoping to impress a pretty young historian named Clytie Potts, who was standing just behind. Tom nodded and turned his back, concentrating on the chase. Look! 
shouted Clytie Potts. The gap between London and its prey was narrowing fast, and a dark shape had lifted clear of Salthook. Soon there was another, and another. Airships! The crowds on London's observation platforms cheered, and Mellifant said, Aha! Air merchants! They know the town is doomed, you see. So they are making sure they get away before we eat it. If they don't, we can claim their cargoes along with everything else aboard. Tom was glad to see that Clytie Potts looked thoroughly bored by Mellifant. She was a year above him, and must already know this stuff, because she had passed her guild exams, and had the historian's mark tattooed on her forehead. Look, she said again, catching Tom's glance and grinning. Oh, look at them go! Aren't they beautiful? Tom pushed his untidy hair out of his eyes, and watched as the airships rose up and up, and vanished into the slate-grey clouds. For a moment he found himself longing to go with them, up into the sunlight. If only his poor parents had not left him to the care of the guild to be trained as a historian. He wished he could be cabin boy aboard a sky clipper and see all the cities of the world, Puerto Angeles adrift on the blue Pacific, and Archangel skating on iron runners across the frozen northern seas, the great ziggurat towns of the Nuevo Mayans and the unmoving strongholds of the Anti-Traction League. But that was just a daydream, better saved for some dull museum afternoon. A fresh outbreak of cheering warned him that the chase was nearing its end, and he forgot the airships and turned his attention back to Salthook. The little town was so close that he could see the ant-like shapes of people running about on its upper tiers. How frightened they must be, with London bearing down on them and nowhere to hide. But he knew he mustn't feel sorry for them. It was natural that cities ate towns, just as the towns ate smaller towns, and smaller towns snapped up the miserable static settlements. That was municipal Darwinism, and it was the way the world had worked for a thousand years, ever since the great engineer Nicholas Quirk had turned London into the first traction city. London! London! Tom shouted, adding his voice to the cheers and shouts of everybody else on the platform. And a moment later, they were rewarded by the sight of one of Salthook's wheels breaking loose. The town slewed to a halt, smokestacks snapping off and crashing down into the panicked streets, and then London's lower tiers blocked it from view, and Tom felt the deck plates shiver as the city's huge hydraulic jaws came slamming shut. There was frantic cheering from observation platforms all over the city. Loudspeakers on the tier support pillars started to play London Pride, and somebody Tom had never even seen before hugged him tight and shouted in his ear, A catch! A catch! He didn't mind. At that moment he loved everybody on the platform, even Mellifant. A catch! he yelled back, struggling free, and felt the deck plates trembling again. Somewhere below him, the city's great steel teeth were gripping Salthook, lifting it and dragging it backward into the gut. And perhaps Apprentice Natsworthy would like to come as well, Clytie Potts was saying. Tom had no idea what she was talking about, but as he turned, she touched his arm and smiled. There'll be celebrations in Kensington Gardens tonight, she explained, 
dancing and fireworks. Do you want to come? People didn't usually invite third-class apprentices to parties, especially not people as pretty and popular as Clytie, and Tom wondered at first if she was making fun of him. But Melephant obviously didn't think so, for he tugged her away and said, We don't want Natsworthy's sort there. Why not? asked the girl. Well, you know, huffed Melephant, his square face turning almost as red as Mr. Pomeroy's. But he's just a third, a skivvy. He'll never get his guild mark. He'll just end up as a curator's assistant, won't you, Natsworthy? He asked, leering at Tom. It's a pity your dad didn't leave you enough money for a proper apprenticeship. That's none of your business, shouted Tom angrily. His elation at the catch had evaporated, and he was on edge again, wondering what punishments would be in store when Pomeroy found out that he had sneaked away. He was in no mood for Melephant's taunts. Still, that's what comes of living in a slum on the lower tiers, I suppose, smirked Melephant, turning back to Clytie Potts. Natsworthy's mum and dad lived down on four, see? And when the big tilt happened, they both got squashed flat as a couple of raspberry pancakes. Splat! Tom didn't mean to hit him. It just happened. Before he knew what he was doing, his hand had curled into a tight fist, and he lashed out. Ow! wailed Melephant, so startled that he fell over backward. Someone cheered, and Clytie stifled a giggle. Tom just stood staring at his trembling fist and wondering how he had done it. But Melephant was much bigger and tougher than Tom, and he was already back on his feet. Clytie tried to restrain him, but some other historians were cheering him on, and a group of boys in the green tunics of apprentice navigators clustered close behind and chanted, Fight! 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 Tom knew he stood no more chance against Melephant than Salthook had stood against London. He took a step backward, but the crowd was hemming him in. Then Melephant's fist hit him on the side of the face, and Melephant's knee crashed up hard between his legs, and he was bent double and stumbling away with his eyes full of tears. Something as big and softly yielding as a sofa stood in his way, and as he rammed his head against it, it said, Oof! He looked up into a round, red, bushy-eyebrowed face under an unconvincing wig, a face that grew even redder when it recognized him. Natsworthy! boomed Chudley Pomeroy. What in Quirk's name do you think you're playing at? Chapter 2 Valentine And so Tom found himself being sent off to do gut duty while all the other apprentices were busy celebrating the capture of Salthook. After a long, embarrassing lecture in Pomeroy's office, Disobedience, Natsworthy, striking a senior apprentice, what would your poor parents have thought? He trudged over to Tottenham Court Road Station and waited for a down elevator. When it came, it was crowded. The seats in the upper compartment were packed with arrogant-looking men and women from the Guild of Engineers, the most powerful of the four great guilds that ran London. They gave Tom the creeps with their bald heads and those long, white rubber coats they wore, 
so he stayed standing in the lower section, where the stern face of the Lord Mayor stared down at him from posters saying, Movement is life. Help the Guild of Engineers keep London moving. Down and down went the elevator, stopping at all the familiar stations, Bakerloo, High Hoban, Low Hoban, Bethnal Green, and at every stop another crowd of people surged into the car, squashing him against the back wall until it was almost a relief to reach the bottom and step out into the noise and bustle of the gut. The gut was where London dismantled the towns it caught, a stinking sprawl of yards and factories between the jaws and the central engine rooms. Tom loathed it. It was always noisy, and it was staffed by workers from the lower tiers who were dirty and frightening, and convicts from the deep-gut prisons who were worse. The heat down there always gave him a headache, and the sulphurous air made him sneeze, and the flicker of the argon globes that lit the walkways hurt his eyes. But the Guild of Historians always made sure some of its staff were on hand when a town was being digested, and tonight he would have to join them and go about reminding the tough old foreman of the gut that any books and antiques aboard the new catch were the rightful property of his guild, and that history was just as important as bricks and iron and coal. He fought his way out of the elevator terminus and hurried toward the Guild of Historians' warehouse, through tubular corridors lined with green ceramic tiles, and across metal catwalks high above the fiery gulfs of the digestion yards. Far below him he could see Salthook being torn to pieces. It looked tiny now, dwarfed by the vastness of London. Big yellow dismantling machines were crawling around it on tracks and swinging above it on cranes and clambering over it on hydraulic spider legs. Its wheels and axles had already been taken off, and work was starting on the chassis. Circular saws as big as ferris wheels bit into the deck plates, throwing up plumes of sparks. Great blasts of heat came billowing from furnaces and smelters, and before he had gone twenty paces, Tom could feel the sweat starting to soak through the armpits of his black uniform tunic. But when he finally reached the warehouse, things started to look a bit brighter. Salthook had not had a museum or a library, and the small heaps that had been salvaged from the town's junk shops were already being packed into crates for their journey up to Tier 2. If he was lucky, he might be allowed to finish early and catch the end of the celebrations. He wondered which guildsman was in charge tonight. If it was old Arkengarth or Dr. Weymouth, he was doomed. They always made you work your whole shift, whether there was anything to do or not. If it was Potty Pewter-Tide or Miss Plym, he might be all right. But as he hurried toward the supervisor's office, he began to realize that someone much more important than any of them was on gut duty tonight. There was a bug parked outside the office, a sleek black bug with the guild's emblem painted on its engine cowling, much too flash for any of the usual staff. Two men in the livery of high-ranking guild staff stood waiting beside it. They were rough-looking types in spite of their plush clothes, and Tom knew at once who they were. Pusey and Gensch, the reformed air pirates who had been the head historian's faithful servants for twenty years, and who piloted the thirteenth-floor elevator whenever he flew off on an expedition. 
Valentine is here, Tom thought, and tried not to stare as he hurried past them up the steps. Thaddeus Valentine was Tom's hero, a former scavenger who had risen to become London's most famous archaeologist, and also its head historian, much to the envy and disgust of people like Pomeroy. Tom kept a picture of him tacked to the dormitory wall above his bunk, and he had read his books, Adventures of a Practical Historian, and America Deserter, Across the Dead Continent with Gun, Camera, and Airship, until he knew them by heart. The proudest moment of his life had been when he was twelve, and Valentine had come down to present the apprentices' end-of-year prizes, including the one Tom had won for an essay on identifying fake antiquities. He still remembered every word of the speech the great man had made. Never forget, apprentices, that we historians are the most important guild in our city. We don't make as much money as the merchants, but we create knowledge, which is worth a great deal more. We may not be responsible for steering London like the navigators, but where would the navigators be if we hadn't preserved the ancient maps and charts? And as for the Guild of Engineers, just remember that every machine they have ever developed is based on some fragment of old tech, ancient high technology that our museum keepers have preserved or our archaeologists have dug up. All Tom had been able to manage by way of reply was a mumbled, Thank you, sir, before he scurried back to his seat, so it never occurred to him that Valentine would remember him. But when he opened the door of the supervisor's office, the great man looked up from his desk and grinned. It's Natsworthy, isn't it? The apprentice who's so good at spotting fakes. I'll have to watch my step tonight, or you'll find me out. It wasn't much of a joke, but it broke through the awkwardness that usually existed between an apprentice and a senior guildsman, and Tom relaxed enough to stop hovering on the threshold and step right inside, holding out his note from Pomeroy. Valentine jumped to his feet and came striding over to take it. He was a tall, handsome man of nearly forty, with a mane of silver-flecked black hair and a trim black beard. His grey mariner's eyes twinkled with humour, and on his forehead a third eye, the guild mark of the historian, the blue eye that looks backward into time, seemed to wink as he raised a quizzical eyebrow. Fighting, eh? And what did Apprentice Melephant do to deserve a black eye? He was saying stuff about my mum and dad, sir, mumbled Tom. I see. The explorer nodded, watching the boy's face. Instead of telling him off, he asked, Are you the son of David and Rebecca Natsworthy? Yes, sir, admitted Tom. But I was only six when the big tilt happened. I mean, I don't really remember them. Valentine nodded again, and his eyes were sad and kind. They were good historians, Thomas. I hope you'll follow in their footsteps. Oh, yes, sir, said Tom. I mean, I hope so, too. He thought of his poor mum and dad, killed when part of Cheapside collapsed onto the tier below, 
Nobody had ever spoken like that about them before, and he felt his eyes filling with tears. He felt as if he could tell Valentine anything, anything at all, and he was just on the point of saying how much he missed his parents and how lonely and boring it was being a third-class apprentice when a wolf walked into the office. It was a very large wolf, and white, and it appeared through the door that led out into the stockroom. As soon as it saw Tom, it came running toward him, bearing its yellow fangs. Ha! <laughs> he shrieked, leaping onto a chair. A wolf! Oh, do behave, a girl's voice said, and a moment later the girl herself was there, bending over the beast and tickling the soft white ruff of fur under its chin. The fierce amber eyes closed happily, and Tom heard its tail whisking against her clothes. Don't worry, she laughed, smiling up at him. He's a lamb. I mean, he's a wolf, really, but he's as gentle as a lamb. Tom, said Valentine, his eyes twinkling with amusement. Meet my daughter, Catherine, and Dog. Dog? Tom came down off his chair, feeling foolish and still a little scared. He had thought the brute must have escaped from the zoo in Circle Park. It's a long story, said Valentine. Catherine lived on the raft city of Puerto Angeles until she was five. Then her mother died, and she was sent to live with me. I brought Dog back for her as a present for my expedition to the ice wastes. But Catherine couldn't speak very much English in those days, and she'd never heard of wolves. So when she first saw him, she said, Dog, and it sort of stuck. He's perfectly tame, the girl promised, still smiling up at Tom. Father found him when he was just a cub. He had to shoot the mother, but he hadn't the heart to finish poor Dog off. He likes it best if you tickle his tummy. Uh, dog, I mean, not father, she laughed. She had a lot of long, dark hair, and her father's grey eyes, and the same quick, dazzling smile. And she was dressed in the narrow silk trousers and flowing tunic that were all the rage in high London that summer. Tom gazed at her in wonder. He had seen pictures of Valentine's daughter, but he had never realized how beautiful she was. Look, she said, he likes you. Dog had ambled over to sniff at the hem of Tom's tunic. His tail swished from side to side, and a wet pink tongue rasped over Tom's fingers. If Dog likes people, said Catherine, I usually find I like them too. So come along, father, introduce us properly. Valentine laughed. Well, Kate, this is Tom Natsworthy, who has been sent down here to help, and if your wolf has finished with him, I think we will have to let him get to work. He put a kindly hand on Tom's shoulder. There's not much to be done. We'll just take a last look around the yards, and then— He glanced at the note from Pomeroy, then tore it up into little pieces— and dropped them into the red recycling bin beside his desk. Then you can go. Tom was not sure what surprised him more, that Valentine was letting him off, or that he was coming down to the yards in person. Senior guildsmen usually preferred to sit in the comfort of the office and let the apprentices do the hard work down in the heat and fumes, 
But here was Valentine pulling off his black robes, clipping a pen into the pocket of his waistcoat, pausing to grin at Tom from the doorway. Come along, then, he said. The sooner we start, the sooner you can be off to join the fun in Kensington Gardens. Down they went, and down, with Dog and Catherine following, down past the warehouse and on down twisting spirals of metal stairs to the digestion yards, where Salthook was growing smaller by the minute. All that remained of it now was a steel skeleton, and the machines were ripping even that apart, dragging deck plates and girders away to the furnaces to be melted down. Meanwhile, mountains of brick and slate and timber and salt and coal were trundling off on conveyor belts toward the heart of the gut, and skips of furniture and provisions were being wheeled clear by the salvage gangs. The salvage men were the true rulers of this part of London, and they knew it. They swaggered along the narrow walkways with the agility of tomcats, their bare chests shiny with sweat and their eyes hidden by tinted goggles. Tom had always been frightened of them, but Valentine hailed them with an easy charm and asked them if they had seen anything amongst the spoils that might be of interest to the museum. Sometimes he stopped to joke with them or ask them how their families were doing, and he was always careful to introduce them to my colleague, Mr. Natsworthy. Tom felt himself swell with pride. Valentine was treating him like a grown-up, and so the salvagemen treated him the same way, touching the peaks of their greasy caps and grinning as they introduced themselves. They all seemed to be called Len or Smudger. Take no notice of what they say about these chaps up at the museum, warned Valentine, as one of the Lens led them to a skip where some antiques had been stowed. Just because they live down in the nether burrows and don't pronounce their H's doesn't mean they're fools. That's why I like to come down in person when the yards are working. I've often seen salvagemen and scavengers turn up artifacts that historians might have missed. Yes, sir, agreed Tom, glancing at Catherine. He longed to do something that would impress the head historian and his beautiful daughter. If only he could find some wonderful fragment of old tech amongst all this junk, something that would make them remember him after they had gone back to the luxury of high London. Otherwise, after this wander around the yards, he might never see them again. Hoping to amaze them, he hurried to the skip and looked inside. After all, old tech did turn up from time to time in small-town antique shops or on old ladies' mantelpieces. Imagine being the one to rediscover some legendary secret, like heavier-than-air flying machines or pot noodles. Even if it wasn't something that the Guild of Engineers could use, it might still end up in the museum, labelled and preserved in a display case with a notice saying, Discovered by Mr. T. Natsworthy. He peered hopefully at the heap of salvage in the skip. Shards of plastic, lampstands, a flattened toy ground car. A small metal box caught his eye. When he pulled it out and opened it, his own face blinked back at him, reflected in a silvery plastic disc. Mr. Valentine! Look! A seedy! Valentine reached into the box and lifted out the disc, 
tilting it so that rainbow light darted across its surface. Quite right, he said. The ancients used these in their computers as a way of storing information. Could it be important? asked Tom. Valentine shook his head. I'm sorry, Thomas. The people of the old days may only have lived in static settlements, but their electronic machines were far beyond anything London's engineers have been able to build. Even if there is still something stored on this disk, we have no way of reading it. But it's a good find. Keep hold of it, well, just in case. He turned away as Tom put the CD back in its box and slid it into his pocket. But Catherine must have sensed Tom's disappointment, because she touched his hand and said, It's lovely, Tom. Anything that has survived all those thousands of years is lovely, whether it's any use to the horrible old Guild of Engineers or not. I've got a necklace made of old computer disks. She smiled at him. She was as lovely as one of the girls in his daydreams, but kinder and funnier and he knew that from now on the heroines he rescued in his imagination would all be Catherine Valentine. There was nothing else of interest in the skip. Salthook had been a practical sort of town, too busy gnawing at the old seabed to bother about digging up the past. But instead of going straight back to the warehouse, Valentine led his companions up another staircase and along a narrow catwalk to the incomers station, where the former inhabitants were queuing to give their names to the clerk of admissions and be taken up to new homes in the hostels and workhouses of London. Even when I'm not on duty, he explained, I always make a point of going down to see the scavengers when we make a catch, before they have a chance to sell their finds at the Tier 5 antique markets and melt back into the out-country. There were always some scavengers aboard a catch, townless wanderers who roamed the hunting ground on foot, scratching up pieces of old tech. Salthook was no exception. At the end of a long queue of dejected townsfolk stood a group more ragged than the rest, with long, tattered coats that hung down to their ankles, and goggles and dust masks slung about their grubby necks. Like most Londoners, Tom was horrified by the idea that people still actually lived on the bare earth. He hung back with Catherine and Dog, but Valentine went over to speak with the scavengers. They came clustering around him, all except one, a tall, thin one in a black coat. A girl, Tom thought, although he could not be sure, because she wore a black scarf wrapped across her face like the turban of a desert nomad. He stood near her and watched while Valentine introduced himself to the other scavengers and asked, So, have any of you found anything the Historian's Guild might wish to purchase? Some of the men nodded, some shook their heads, some rummaged in their bulging packs. The girl in the black headscarf slid one hand inside her coat and said, I have something for you, Valentine. She spoke so softly that only Tom and Catherine heard her, and as they turned to look, she suddenly sprang forward, whipping out a long, thin-bladed knife. Chapter 3 The Waste Shoot There was no time to think. Catherine screamed, Dog growled, the girl hesitated for a moment, 
and Tom saw his chance and threw himself forward, grabbing her arm as she drove the knife at Valentine's heart. She hissed, writhing, and the knife dropped to the deck as she twisted free and darted away along the catwalk. Stop her! bellowed Valentine, starting forward. But the other refugees had seen the knife and were milling about in fright, barring his way. Several of the scavengers had pulled out firearms, and an armoured policeman came lumbering through the crowd like a huge blue beetle, shouting, No guns allowed in London! Glancing over the scavengers' heads, Tom glimpsed a dark silhouette against the distant glare of furnaces. The girl was at the far end of the catwalk, climbing nimbly up a ladder to a higher level. He ran after her and snatched at her ankle as she reached the top. He missed by a few inches, and at the same moment a dart hissed past him, striking sparks from the rungs. He looked back. Two more policemen were thrusting through the crowd with crossbows raised. Beyond them he could see Catherine and her father watching him. Don't shoot, he shouted. I can catch her! He flung himself at the ladder and scrambled eagerly upward, determined to be the one to capture the would-be assassin. He could feel his heart pounding with excitement. After all those dull years spent dreaming of adventures, suddenly he was having one. He had saved Mr. Valentine's life. He was a hero. The girl was already heading along the maze of high-level catwalks that led toward the furnace district. Hoping that Catherine could still see him, Tom set off in pursuit. The catwalk forked and narrowed, the handrails only a yard apart. Below him the work of the digestion yards went on regardless. No one down there had noticed the drama being played out above their heads. He plunged through deep shadows and warm, blinding clouds of steam, with the girl always a few feet ahead. A low duct caught her headscarf and ripped it off. Her long hair was coppery in the dim glow of the furnaces, but Tom still couldn't see her face. He wondered if she was pretty, a beautiful assassin from the Anti-Traction League. He ducked past the dangling headscarf and ran on, gasping for breath, fumbling his collar open. Down a giddy spiral of iron stairs and out onto the floor of the digestion yards, flashing through the shadows of conveyor belts and huge spherical gas tanks. A gang of convict labourers looked up in amazement as the girl raced by. Stop her! yelled Tom. They just stood, gawping as he passed. But when he looked back, he saw that one of the apprentice engineers who had been supervising them had broken off his work to join the chase. Tom immediately regretted shouting out. He wasn't going to give up his victory to some stupid engineer. He put on an extra spurt of speed so that he should be the one who caught her. Ahead, the way was barred by a circular hole in the deck plate, ringed by rusty handrails, a waste chute, scorched and blackened, where clinker from the furnaces had been tipped down. The girl broke her pace for a moment, wondering what way to turn. When she went on, Tom had narrowed her lead. His outstretched fingers grabbed her pack, the strap broke, and she stopped and spun to face him, lit by the red glare of the smelters. She was no older than Tom, and she was hideous. A terrible scar ran down her face from forehead to jaw, making it look like a portrait that had been furiously crossed out. Her mouth was wrenched sideways in a permanent sneer, 
Her nose was a smashed stump, and her single eye stared at him out of the wreckage, as grey and chill as a winter sea. Why didn't you let me kill him? she hissed. He was so shocked that he couldn't move or speak, could only stand there as the girl reached down for her fallen pack and turned to run on. But behind him, police whistles were blowing and crossbow darts came sparking against the metal deck plates and the overhead ducts. The girl dropped the pack and fell sideways, gasping a filthy curse. Tom hadn't even imagined that girls knew such words. Don't shoot, he yelled, waving toward the policeman. They were lumbering down the spiral stair beyond the gas tanks, shooting as they came, as if they didn't much care that Tom was in the way. Don't shoot! The girl scrambled up, and he saw that a crossbow dart had gone through her leg just above the knee. She clutched at it, blood welling out between her fingers. Her breath came in sobs as she backed up against the handrail, lifting herself awkwardly over it. Behind her, the waist chute gaped like an open mouth. No! shouted Tom, seeing what she meant to do. He didn't feel like a hero any more. He just felt sorry for this poor, hideous girl, and guilty at being the one who had trapped her here. He held out his hand to her, willing her not to jump. I couldn't let you hurt Mr. Valentine, he said, shouting to make her hear him above the din of the gut. He's a good man, a kind, brave, wonderful... The girl lunged forward, shoving her awful noseless face toward him. Look at me, she said, her voice all twisted by her twisted mouth. Look what your brave, kind Valentine did to me. What do you mean? Ask him, she screamed. Ask him what he did to Hester Shore. The police were closer now. Tom could feel their footsteps drumming on the deck. The girl glanced past him, then heaved her wounded leg over the handrail, crying out at the pain. No, pleaded Tom again, but too late. Her ragged greatcoat snapped and fluttered, and she was gone. He flung himself forward and peered down the shadowed chute. A cool blast of air came up at him, mingled with the smell of mud and crushed vegetation, the smell of the speeding earth beneath the city. No! She had jumped. She had jumped right out of the city to her death. Hester Shaw. He would have to remember that name and say a prayer for her to one of London's many gods. Shapes loomed out of the drifting smoke. The policemen were advancing cautiously like watchful crabs, and Valentine was with them, running ahead. In the shadows under a gas tank, Tom saw the young engineer looking on, shocked. Tom tried to smile at him, but his face felt frozen, and the next moment another thick swag of smoke had folded over him, blotting out everything. Tom, are you all right? Valentine ran up, barely winded by the long chase. Where is she? Where is the girl? Dead, Tom said lamely. Valentine stood beside him at the handrail and peered over. The shadows of the drifting smoke moved over his face like cobwebs. There was a strange light in his eyes, and his face was tight and white and frightened. 
Did you see her, Tom? Did she have a scar? Yes, said Tom, wondering how Valentine could know that. It was horrible. Her eye was gone, and her nose. Then he remembered the terrible thing the girl had told him. And she said— But he wasn't sure if he should tell Mr. Valentine what she had said. It was a lie. Insane. She said her name was Hester Shaw. Great quirk, hissed Valentine. And Tom flinched backward, wishing he had never mentioned it. But when he looked up again, Valentine was smiling kindly at him, his eyes full of sorrow. Don't worry, Tom, he said. I'm sorry. Tom felt a big, gentle hand on his shoulder. And then, he was never sure quite how it happened, a twist, a shove, and he was pitching over the handrail and falling, just as Hester Shaw had fallen, flailing wildly for a hold on the smooth metal at the brim of the waist chute. He pushed me, he thought, and it was more amazement that he felt than fear as the black throat swallowed him down into the dark. Chapter 4 The Out Country Silence. Silence. He couldn't understand it. Even when London wasn't moving, there was usually some sort of noise in the dormitory. The whir of ventilators, the hum and rattle of distant elevator shafts, the snores of other apprentices in the neighbouring bunks. But now, silence. His head ached. In fact, all of him ached. His bunk felt strange, too. And when he moved his hands, there was something cold and slimy that oozed between his fingers, like mud. He sat up, gasping. He wasn't in the third-class dormitory at all. He was lying on a great humpbacked mound of mud on the edge of a deep trench, and in the thin pearl-grey light of dawn, he could see the girl with the ruined face sitting nearby. His horrible dream of sliding down that fire-blackened chute had been true. He had fallen out of London, and he was alone with Hester Shaw on the bare earth. He moaned in terror, and the girl glanced quickly around at him, and then away. You're alive, then, she said. I thought you died. She sounded as if she didn't much care either way. Tom scrambled up onto all fours, so that only his knees and his toes and the palms of his hands were touching the mud. His arms were bare, and when he looked down, he saw that his bruised body was naked to the waist. His tunic lay on the mud nearby, but he couldn't find his shirt at all, until he crawled closer to the scarred girl and realized that she was busily tearing it into strips that she was using to bandage her wounded leg. Hey, he said, that's one of my best shirts. So, she replied without looking up, it's one of my best legs. He pulled his tunic on. It was tattered and filthy from his fall down the waist chute, full of rents that let the chill out-country air through. He hugged himself, shivering. Valentine pushed me. He pushed me, and I fell down the shaft into the out-country. He pushed me. No, he can't have. It must have been a mistake. 
I slipped, and he tried to grab me. That's what must have happened. Hester Shaw finished her bandaging and stood up, grunting at the pain as she pulled her filthy, blood-stiffened breeches on over the wound. Then she threw what was left of Tom's shirt back at him, a useless rag. You should have let me kill him, she said, and turned away, setting off with a kind of furious limp up the long curve of the mud. Tom watched her go, too shocked and bewildered to move. It was only when she vanished over the top of the slope that he realized he didn't want to be left alone here. He would prefer any company, even hers, to the silence. He flung the torn shirt away and ran after her, slithering in the thick, clagging mud, stubbing his toes on fragments of rock and torn-up roots. The deep, sheer-walled trench yawned on his left, and as he reached the crest of the rise, he realized that it was just one of a hundred identical trenches, the huge track marks of London stretching ruler straight into the distance. Far, far ahead, he saw his city dark against the brightening eastern sky, wrapped in the smoke of its own engines. He felt the cold tug of homesickness. Everyone he had ever known was aboard that dwindling mountain. Everyone except Hester, who was stomping angrily after it, dragging her injured leg behind her. Stop! he shouted, half running, half wading to catch her up. Hester! Miss Shaw! Leave me alone! she snapped. But where are you going? I've got to get back into London, haven't I? she said. Two years it took me to find it, trudging across the out-country on foot, jumping aboard little townlets in the hope it would be London that scuffed them. And when I finally get there and find Valentine, come down to strut round the yards just like the scavengers told me he would— what happens? Some idiot stops me from cutting his heart out like he deserves. She stopped walking and turned to face Tom. If you hadn't shoved your oar in, he'd be dead, and I'd have fallen down and died beside him, and I'd be at peace by now. Tom stared at her, and before he could stop himself, his eyes filled with stinging tears. He hated himself for looking like a fool in front of Hester Shaw, but he couldn't help it. The shock of what had happened to him and the thought of being abandoned out here overwhelmed him, and the hot tears flooded down his face and cut white runnels through the mud on his cheeks. Hester, who had been on the point of turning away, stopped and watched, as if she wasn't sure what was happening to him. "'You're crying,' she said at last quite gently, sounding surprised. Sorry, he sniffed. I never cry. I can't. I didn't even cry when Valentine murdered my mum and dad. What? Tom's voice was all wobbly from weeping. Mr. Valentine would never do something like that. Catherine said he couldn't even bring himself to shoot a wolf cub. You're lying. How come you're here, then? She asked, mocking him. He shoved you out after me, didn't he? Just because you'd seen me. You're lying, said Tom again. But he remembered those big hands thrusting him forward, remembered falling, and the strange light that had shone in the archaeologist's eyes. Well, asked Hester. He pushed me, murmured Tom, amazed. 
Hester Shaw just shrugged, as if to say, See, see what he's really like. Then she turned away and started walking again. Tom hurried along at her side. I'll come with you. I've got to get back to London, too. I'll help you. You? She gave a hissing laugh and spat on the mud at his feet. I thought you were Valentine's man. Now you want to help me kill him? Tom shook his head. He didn't know what he wanted. Part of him still clung to the hope that it was all a misunderstanding, and Valentine was good and kind and brave. He certainly didn't want to see him murdered, and poor Catherine left without a father. But he had to catch up with London somehow, and he couldn't do it alone. And anyway, he felt responsible for Hester Shaw. It was his fault that she had been wounded after all. I'll help you walk, he said. You're injured. You need me. I don't need anybody, she said fiercely. We'll go after London together, Tom promised. I'm a member of the Guild of Historians. They'll listen to me. I'll tell Mr. Pomeroy. If Valentine really did the things you said, then the law will deal with him. The law, she scoffed. Valentine is the law in London. Isn't he the Lord Mayor's favourite? Isn't he the head historian? No, he'll kill me unless I kill him first. Kill you too, probably. Shing! She mimed, drawing a sword and driving it through Tom's chest. The sun was rising, lifting wreaths of steam from the wet mud. London was still moving, visibly smaller since the last time he looked. The city usually stopped for a few days when it had eaten, and some part of Tom's brain, that was not quite numb, wondered idly, Where on earth is it going? But just then the girl stumbled and fell, her bad leg crumpling under her. Tom scrambled to help her up. She didn't thank him, but she didn't push him away either. He pulled her arm around his shoulders and hauled her up, and they set off together along the mud ridge, following London's tracks into the east.